Welcome to our weekly Wednesday night shir. We mean weekly every week. Baruch Hashem. Lilu Nishmas. Oh, one second. How do I add him now? Okay, one second. I gotta cut you off and add you through here. Um. One second, I hope he gets the hint to, to pick him up from here. Oh gosh. There we are. Who is running? I hope so. Okay. Thank you for the happy birthday wishes. Here is Lil Nishmas, Nachim Yakim Ben Tvihir. And Bat Sheva Chana Bas Vavachayim Tevim Aruchim Sholim Ebavrom Shiyeche. Wow, what a Shabbos coming! Shabbos Shira, my favorite parsha, my Bar Mitzvah parsha. Hmm. Feel so young, and of course, this Shabbos is Tu B'Shvat. Tu B'Shvat. Can you imagine it's Tu B'Shvat? Um, why did he fall off the call? I don't understand. Try again. Okay. Tu B'Shvat, as we all know, is a beautiful Chagli Danot. Rosh Hashanah for the trees. Very interesting way of putting it. All creation is judged on each on its own. Rosh Hashanah, Arba Rosh Hashanah Meim, says the Mishnah. And one of them, of course, is Tezvav Shvat, which is the Shoshana of the trees. Oops. Yes. Yes. Who? No, no. Nothing heavy. Nothing heavy cheese. Bye. Okay. There are those that have a custom, of course, the Svartic basically have a custom to make a, safa, a Seder of, of Paris to eat 15 different fruits. Ashrechem. <laughs> Ashrechem. There's only seven fruits that, that Israel is known for. But there are, of course, a very vast array of fruits that can be gotten. And it's a beautiful thing to make a little Tu B'Shvat Seder. Unfortunately, fortunately, it's Leil Shabbos and it's Shabbos Day, and therefore it have to be done in Suda Shabbos. Needless to say, if you're going to do it within the Suda, then one would not make any brachas on it, but if you're making it for dessert, one would make a Beripia Eitz as the end of the meal, as being a dessert. Tezvav B'chedesh, in general, the 15th day of the month, is the day that's Kaim Siyara Musa. Hopefully, everybody got in their Kiddush, Kiddush Levana this week, uh, this month. If you didn't do Kiddush Levana, you have till tonight, tomorrow night, actually. If you can, maybe tomorrow night it'll be cleared up. Here in New York, they're expecting a major snowstorm. The schools, uh, the public schools have been closed. 
um, in turn closing down my yeshiva because I have to rely on the city's busing. The other yeshivas will be open here locally, but they're not giving any transportation. Pashas B'Shalach is known as Shabashira, as we said before. Shabashira, of course, being in refer- making reference to the Shira in which Moshe sings, Moshe and the Jews sing to Hashem, thanking Hashem for the miracles which they have experienced. Um, Shabashira although although we do celebrate the miracle but in this Pasha there are many many other different things first of all namely Pasha's Hamon yesterday many many people read Pasha's Hamon Which was from the Remendel Rimneva, he said a skula for wealth was to read Pashas Haman on Tuesday of Bishalach. Um, not really a Chabad Minig, but it's a nice custom. I spoke many times about the different tidbits of the Pasha, for those that need a Dvar Torah for the Pasha this week, the say by the to- by the table, Shabbos table for Friday night, you could talk about Vahib Shalach Pare Asa'om. The Tehran tells us that when you want to say something of Simcha, of happiness, is Vahoya, the Lashon is Vahoya, that it came to pass, but in a time of sadness, is Vahihi. When the Tehran says the word Vahihi, it's referring to something sad that happened. So the question, of course, becomes Vayihi b'shalach pare The last week's parsha we know we spoke about is a parsha discussing the redemption. The Jews are redeemed from Egypt. This week's parsha, the Jews are traveling out of Egypt. What could be bad about that? What's bitter? Why Vayihi? Why a lotion of sadness? First of all, the simplest answer is Vayihi, what happened? B'Shalach Pare The Jewish nation left Egypt, yes they did, but not on their own reconnaissance. Not because they wanted to leave, but because Pare evicted them. This is very sad. Not because they wanted to go serve God, but because Pare threw them out, B'Shalach Pare and therefore Vayihi is used as the lotion of sadness. Fact being, the Jews that did not want to leave Egypt, we know, we spoke last week, during the plague of Cheshach, of darkness, they were all killed. So, then in that case, what are we referring to? Who are we referring to? 
when we say Bishalach Paris on that the Jews left only because Paris sent them out. If all the Jews were that didn't want to leave were already killed out. LMI will discuss another term. And that is the fact that the Jews come to the Yamsuf and they see the Egypt the Egyptians are pouncing upon them and they call out to God. They cry out to God. Moshe himself is davening. Moshe himself is standing and davening to Hashem. What does Hashem tell him? Hashem tells him something very interesting. Because they saw the Egyptians were about to attack. They did know though that God promised He's going to take them into the Holy Land. If God promised to take them to the Holy Land, then He will do so. Why now scream and cry about the Egyptians? And Rashi says, they cried out, they seized the craft of their ancestors. Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, our forefathers, were always crying out to God. It was everyday life. They prayed regularly. Not only when there was a problem, when there was a crisis, they always davening. So therefore Rashi refers to davening, to praying, the forefathers' craft. This is what they always did. They were always constantly praying. This is their full-time occupation. So the Jews praying now to God did not stem from the fact that they were frightened, that they were hesitant, that they did not believe, that they doubted. But rather, this was the instinct that they did. They prayed, because that's what Jews do. They pray. And the same is true for every Jew in every generation. Since we're all descendants of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, our service of God through prayer, and of course through terrorist study, mitzvah observance, should not have a limit to it. It does not have a specific requirement. We need to emulate. We need to seize the craft of our forefathers. We need to engross ourselves in these activities. Constantly, instinctively. Because this is who we are. And this is what we do. And if you go to bring out, to speak to other Jews, to bring them closer to Yiddishkeit, we need to recognize that prayer, their Torah study, their mitzvah observance. They too are children of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. So no matter how far removed they are from Jewish practice, sometimes Jews seem to be, we need to approach him with a conviction that Yiddishkeit is his craft. This is your business. This is what it's all about. This is your daily life. And therefore it should not be a foreign thing to you. But rather, 
It is part of your daily life. But Moshe, the Hebrew says to Moshe, Vayema Hashem Moshe, Ma Titzakelai in chapter 14, verse 15, Perik Yudalit Posek Tezvov, Ma Titzakelai, Dabar Al-Bene Yisrael V'Yisrael, What are you screaming to me? Tell the Yidin to go, travel. The Yidin was surrounded, they had the desert in front, the right side and the desert on the left. They had the Yamsuf in front of them, flowing with rapid water. And the Egyptians behind them. All Mesha, the old God wanted for Mesha is put out your hand over the sea and let the sea split. Before God told him to split the sea, God reprimanded him. What are you screaming for? Moshe was standing and praying. And God said to him, now is not the time to pray at length. A Jew is in distress. A nation is in distress. Don't stand now praying. Get to work. Action is more than a thousand words. Now let's get real. We're talking about Moshe Rabbeinu Davening. Who davens with more kavana? Who davens more special than Moshe Rabbeinu? And the Almighty tells Moshe Rabbeinu, enough for now. I love your davenings, but not now. Now is not the time for this. Now is time to save the Yidin. So the words where God calls and asks Moshe, he calls him out and says, Why do you cry out to me? God was teaching Mesha a lesson. And not only for Mesha, but for each and every one of us. Our responsibility to our fellow Jew shouldn't be an afterthought. When a Jew is at risk of devastation, physical or spiritual, we must put everything else aside. And we devote ourselves to saving the Jew. Even if this means sacrificing opportunities for our own personal growth. Giving up on our own terror time, our own learning time. We see though that the Jews go into the dry land in a very interesting way the Pasik says it. Ubnay Israel Holku Baya Bosha Pseychayam Chapter fourteen again verse twenty nine Yudalid Khaftes. Ubnay Israel Holku Baya Bosha Pseychayam and the Jewish children went into the on the dry land in the midst of the sea. It's an axiomon, it doesn't fit. We know, those keeping score at home, Mesech Tzchulin, Kuf Chov Zayin Amar Aleph, 127, side A, that everything that exists on land exists in the sea. What's the difference? The extent of which the occupants are visible to the human eye. The Living creatures in the sea are obviously not like their counterparts on dry land. 
they're mostly out of sight. And Chassidus therefore interprets what's Kriya Samsuf? What is the splitting of the Red Sea, the Reed Sea? When sea was transferred into dry land. Like a spiritual experience in which spiritual realities that are normally unseen become clear and visible. Kriyas Yamsuf is not only something that happened that one time. It's something we need to strive for in our personal service to God on a daily basis. One way to apply our personal spiritual Kriyas Yamsuf is bridging the gap between the spiritual heights that we experience during prayer and the activities we engage in the rest of the day. When we sit down to daven, and we daven to Hashem, it's a high. But not only it's a high, we feel connected. We feel one with God. When we finish davening, and we remove our talus and our tefillin, and we're no longer in that state of euphoria, of holiness, of connection, we tend to drift. We tend to deviate from our actual connection to God. We tend to no longer feel being holy literally speaking. As those that daven, they feel, while they're davening, while they're saying their words of prayer, each and every word is connecting them to God. And by focusing on their prayer, they arouse their own hearts and minds. Their conscious feelings to attach and to be subordinated to the subordinated subordination to God. And when a person prays automatically three times a day, it impacts on the conduct of the rest of the day. The intensity of our feelings during prayer, unfortunately they fade or they become hidden from our conscious thoughts when we're preoccupied with mundane actions and work that we have to do during the day. Kriya Yamsov tells us when the hidden world of the sea become exposed, the world of dry land looks the same as the Yamsuf. This empowers us to expose that part of our lives that is naturally hidden, just like the creatures of the sea. And to make it conscious, to make it visible, like the creatures that inhabit dry land. Even while going about our ordinary activities during our work day, etc., we can and we must strive to maintain a constant and conscious submission before God. Exactly like we experienced during Davening. 
And one such thing in our personal lives is to bridge the gap between our spiritual heights that we experience during davening and what we engage in the rest of the day. To devote it, to put it in, to implement it into our daily life. And thereby making everything visible. The actual invisible that we don't see. We actually don't, the underworld world, which is foreign to us during the time that we are praying, and foreign to us by the time we are working, while we are involved in mundane action and activity, that very (coughs) level should find itself, find its way to our daily life during the course of our day. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to the end of the Shira. But let's put a full stop on that. Hold on a second. We're going to rewind. A vart that I like to repeat every time when we learn Shalach, when we speak, talk about Parashat Shalach, because it is so, so profound and beautiful. And so, so important to our daily life. Before the Shira starts, the Torah tells us the words, Az Yashir Moshe. Then, Moshe and the Jews began to sing. Then, subsequently, needs to follow something. Something prior to it happens, that we can talk about then, thereafter. What happens prior to this Shira that brings about the Shira itself. Az Yashir Meisha. If we look in the Torah, we want to say naturally that what happened is the Yamsuf split and the Jews went free, went one way, and the Egyptians all died. But deeper than that, the Pasuk before Oz Yashir Meisha says, Vayaminu Bashem Uvameisha Avdai. They believed in Hashem and in Moshe his servant. The last time the conversation we had that Moshe spoke Lush and Hara about the Jews was Haim Loyaminubi. They will not believe in me. Now tells us the Teda, Vayaminu Bashem of Moshe They did believe in Moshe. Since they did believe in Moshe, therefore now Moshe saw that he was actually wrong when he said, And therefore, Oz Yashem Moshe, then Moshe had a time to sing. I have a little issue here, one of my grandchildren. Please hold on the line one second. I'll be back in a minute. Sorry about that. Okay. Baruch Hashem. Az Yashem Meisha, therefore. Then, Meisha was able to sing once his tshuva was totally accepted by God by the fact that now he saw that the Jews do believe in him. Because Vayaminu Bashem over Meisha Avdi. But then, after the Shira, 
we see another portion of the Shira. And it's a continued reading of the Pasha in chapter 15, verse 20. Tezvav Pasikhov. Vatikach Miriam Hanavia Chesa Harin is Hatif Biodo, Vatitsena Kolanoshim Achareho, Bisufim Uvim Chelis. Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, a musical instrument, and all the women came out after her with their tambourines. And they came out singing and dancing, and they too sing. Shiru Lashem Kigoigo. They too sing. Now, needless to say, that when the Jews crossed the Yamsuf, they were jubilant. They were happy. They saw the Yamsuf reject, spit out all the dead Egyptians and all the treasures and jewelry and everything else that came out known as the Bizas Hayom. And they were very, very happy now, the Jews. Because they knew indeed that the Egyptians were no longer chasing them and the Egyptians would no longer persecute them. They were dead. However, they sang. They didn't dance. They only sang. The women in turn came out with musical instruments singing and dancing. How much more excitement, how much more exuberant were they? They surpassed the men's celebration far superior. The suffering in Egypt, the tortures that the men were put through, the physical labor, was horrific. This is something that's indescribable. However, the women, the Jewish mothers, they suffered something far worse than what the men suffered. Worse than the backbreaking labor, worse than the inflictions that the Egyptians put on the Jews, were the decrees that the wicked Pharaoh put upon the Jews. And that was mostly and mainly with the children. Drowning the baby boys, bathing in the Jewish blood of the blood of the Jewish boys, Jewish children, as the message tells us. These decrees caused all the Jews anguish, but nothing like the pain of a Jewish mother. And therefore the suffering that the women suffered in Egypt was far more painful than that of the men. So now when they rejoiced in their redemption, how great was it? And it was led by whom? By Miriam. Miriam is not the most pleasant of names to give. 
although my Miriam is beautiful, a beautiful name, a beautiful child, Baruch Hashem. Miriam comes from the root of the word mar, bitter. She was afflicted. Where was her pain more than anyone else? As a young girl, Miriam said in Nevoa, she tells her father, firstly, her father and mother had divorced because they didn't want to face the facts, the decree of having children that have to be put in the, in the nilas. Said Miriam to her father and mother, you're doing worse than Pari. Pari said the boys should go in the nilas, not the girls. By you divorcing and not having children, you're not having girls either. You're destroying total Jewish nation. And she prophesied and told them very clearly that we are going to go out of this gullus. But it was more than 80 years since that prophecy that she had said. And she lived in painful anticipation till the end of this bitter exile came about. So Miriam's joy, when the Yidin were redeemed, knew no bounds. And so now she leads the women in their abundant joy, in their abundant celebration. Although Mar is bitter, she brings about, Ah... And the million dollar question comes across. Where did they get the tambourines? See my friends, you gotta let me talk. (laughs) You gotta let me talk or else I can't answer questions. The Jews knew they were going to leave. But nobody knew like the women... And therefore the women were prepared not only to leave, they were prepared to celebrate. And the Rebbe tells us that they were so prepared to celebrate, they prepared their musical instrument, their tambourine, to go dancing, to go sing the shira. And therefore the Rebbe said, at that very sicha, that each and every woman should prepare a tambourine and hang it by their front door. So when the sound of Mashiach Shefer is blown, they should grab their tambourines on the way out to go greet Mashiach, and they too will be able to play their tambourines and sing. And actually the truth to be told, I mean, Baruch Hashem, all my daughters have a tambourine. Most of them say on it, Baruch Abba, Melech HaMashiach. My sister-in-law, Zayin in Brentwood, California, has a campaign. This is her campaign. Her mission in life is to make and decorate and to give out tambourines. She comes now the next to the next week, I believe, is the Kines Hashluchos, Chav Beishvat, towards the end of Shvat, and the Rebbetzin's Yotzeit. And she comes to the Kines with cases of tambourines, and they line up my tables here, and they decorate them a whole night, and they put them on all the chairs by the Kines HaShluchas, for the Shluchas to take home. So, yes, that's where they got their tambourines. They were ready, ever so ready, to greet and to go out and to sing for the Geula.
And this is when the Nasi tells us, the time of your redemption has arrived, and says that he stands on the roof of the Beisah Mignosh, the Yalkut Shemaini that ever quotes, says how Mashiach stands on the roof of the Holy Beisah Mignosh, and says, Anovim, Anovim, Please, it's time for all to gather together. There was a nice Yid. We'll call him Rabbi Yaakov for the story of Kapanim. Rabbi Yaakov was a Yid of Talmud Chachim. Not only a Talmud Chachim, a very wealthy Talmud Chachim. He was a learned man. He knew all of Torah most of Shas, and really, really a lot of Zohar. And he heard, and he had learned, and discovered, if you want to know the future, if you want the best messenger in the news, it's the birds. And the birds can give you the messages and the birds can give you the future. And the birds will tell you what's going on all around the world. And therefore, he had one goal in life to learn the language of the birds. And he insisted, he came to the Balsham HaKadosh and insisted that the Balsham teach him the language of the birds. And the Balsham refused. And he stood outside the window of the Balsham tapping on the window, begging and pleading. This is what he was lacking in life, he felt. To learn the language of the birds. Finally, the Baal told him, My dear child, it's nowhere near as good as you think it is. As a matter of fact, it'll be to your detriment for you to learn the language of the birds. Rabbi Yaakov said, I don't know, I don't care. I want to learn the language of the birds. Hashem finally acquiesced. And he agreed to teach him. And he called him inside. And he sat with him. And he taught him the language of the birds. If Yaakov felt there's nothing more that he could achieve. He has gotten it all now. And the Hashem told him how he has to prepare himself before he does so. And he comes out to the forest and 
He sits to listen to the birds. And he sits to listen to the birds. And he hears news from overseas, from other countries. This is going on, and this is going on. He realizes each, he knows that each chirp represents letters, and therefore is able to put together the words. And he hears the birds finally say, and Rabbi Yaakov's house is going to burn down to the ground. Now, that was scary. In his house he had, besides all the furniture and everything else, and his whole house, his whole life in there, he had all his money, his bonds, his papers, his investments, his loans. But, now that he was savvy to this secret, he ran home, and he told everybody to make sure there's no fires. Make sure no fires are lit. I thought you were staying. No fires are lit. That everything should be safe. And lo and behold, as they were going around from room to room, they found in one of the maids' rooms, she had taka a lit candle, and the candle fell to the floor. And as the carpet was about to start smoldering, they put it out, they extinguished it, and they saved the house. Ah! How smug, how happy, how secure was Ibyakov now. A few weeks later, he ventured out to the forest again. And he ventured out to the forest again, and he comes out, and he hears the birds chatter, the chirping, chirping, and chirping, chirping, all the stories, mikvah news. And the birds' mikvah news finally comes up again with the same thing, but this time a catastrophe that will befall him, that if Yaakov's ships are going to sink at sea. There will be a terrible storm at sea and his ships will sink. He had three ships laden with merchandise ready to go be delivered throughout the world. He runs to the docks and immediately gets hold of the captains and tells them, I don't care what it's going to cost to leave the ships here in the docks, you're not to set sail. Lo and behold, they didn't set sail, but everybody else that did ended up in a storm, and unfortunately, all the ships that had gone out in the next few days were destroyed, except for Abiyakov's. And once again, he sat down to light his cigar, all smug and happy. And then a week, a few weeks later go by, and he comes again to the forest to hear the birds chatter. And they're talking about this and about that one and this and yes, that happening, this happening. And finally, he hears the most dreaded news. And next week, Rabbi Yaakov is going to die. He's petrified. Death? No more, no less? How do I stop that? 
And he ran around in circles like a cat chasing, a dog chasing his tail. Until finally he realized he better run to Mezhebush. And he runs to Mezhebush and he comes to the Basham HaKadosh and he gets inside and he starts to cry and to bemoan. And he tells the Basham of everything that happened. He tells the Basham of the conversations of the birds, his house he saved, his ships he saved. But now they said he himself is going to die. How do I save myself? Oi! Vashemta says, Oi! As he sits there stroking his holy beard. He says, My entire kind, my dear child. The halacha, the Teda tells us, is Ani Chashev Kemes. A pauper, a poor man is like a dead man. Boy, have I died many times. Anyway, a poor man is like a dead man. And you didn't hear that, it's fine. Um, the IRS is going to report me now. <laughs> God decreed that you should lose your house and thereby saving your life. But you saved your house and again jeopardizing your life. So then God said, I'll have Rachmanus on him and I'll still save his life. I'll just ship, sink his ships. He'll still have his house. But you went against that and you went and saved your ships as well. So now, I don't have a solution for you. All this was decrees from heaven to save your life. But you denied the decree. And therefore, you caused havoc. The only thing, says the Bosh Hamdav, I can tell you, since the fact is, on a of Kemes, that a poor man is like he's dead, give away your entire fortune. Give away your entire fortune, and you'll be able to live for many years, but in poverty. The Bashemtiv knew and understood that the secret of the birds was not for this man. By learning the language of the birds, he caused himself tremendous detriment and almost death. So when the Mesha of the generation, the Bashemtiv of the generation, or the Rebbe of the generation, tells us to prepare for Mashiach. And prepare for Mashiach means there are many different stories of different Rebbes, holy people that had a set of Shabbos clothes next to their bed. So when the Shefa, they wake up in the middle of the night to the sound of the Shefa, they should be able to put on their Shabbos clothes to go greet Mashiach. The story of the holy clock the holy clock that ticked and if you knew and you understood the sounds of the ticks and the tocks those are the two sounds the clock makes, right? tick and tock, I guess as long as it doesn't have a toe if you understood the sounds of the ticks and the tocks this holy clock 
Each time it clicked, said, we are coming a moment closer to Mashiach. And this is how we need to program ourselves, program our minds, program our lives, our existence, that we too are prepared for the coming of Mashiach. I'd like to take a little focus, jump off now. I hope we can get still back to the war of Amalek. Prior to that, though, I'd like to discuss another very interesting happening that takes place in this week's parsha, besides Shabbos mentioned in Mara. And that is the Mon. The people came out, they saw the Mon. They saw the Mon. And they said, What is it? Mon who? It's Mon. Tere tells us in this week's parsha, chapter 16, verse 31, Vayikru beis Yisrael eshemei mon. They saw this and they called it mon. Why? They did not know what it was. So by saying Monhu, it wasn't a name, but rather, it means we don't know what this is. Preparation of food. At the end of the Pasha, after telling everything about the Mon coming down, and the way the people had to gather it, and the fact that that Friday was double portions, then it says, Vayikru Beis Yisrael Mon. Again, it refers to it as Mon. I'm sorry, when I told you this Pesach, on 16, chapter 16, verse 31, that was the second time. The first time is in chapter 16, verse 15. Tezvav Tezayim, I think. Or Tezvav Tezvav, or fifteen fifteen, where they called it Mon to begin with. So why now are they calling it a second time the name of Mon? Rashi says that the bread that came down in a loving fashion, Yeridu Lachem. Early hours of the morning this was this came down so that people would have time to prepare it. From this we understand that aside from the fact they got mon, which was as we know, lechem minashamayim, 
bread from heaven. For some people it came without any without any problem, with no job. It was fully ready. You were able to make it and you were able to take it and eat it. Those were the tzaddikim. Then there were those that found it very locally, like the tzaddikim did, but they needed to prepare it. And then there were those that needed to go further, and it was totally raw and had to be prepared. So this is the different stages which the mon came to the Jews. However, when it came to Shabbos, for Shabbos it was totally ready. On Friday they got the double portion, it was ready for Shabbos. So now we understand that only after the story of Shabbos, after they gathered, and these other people went out to gather on Shabbos, etc., this whole episode only then did they understand what the power of this man really was, the value of this man really is, and therefore they again call it the name of man. Now, the question we're going to have here and the question that arises here more importantly did they eat Malava Malka in the desert? Think of that question. Did they have Malava Malka? They had dinner every night. So if they ate they received on Friday food, they received a double portion, and we know which means that they received their food in the morning for the morning and the evening. So did they eat Malav Malka? We find, of course, for those keeping score at home, the Gemara Masech, the Shabbos, Kuf Yud Zayin, 117, the bottom of the second side of Ahmed Beis. So three times a day, it says Hayyim, by the Man now, Pasha. But Malav Malka, we don't find. But it also needs to come from the Man. So we need to say that since the man came in the morning and was enough for at night, and we know the Emer was prepared for two meals, the Shachris, the morning and at night, as the Bali Teisvis talk about, they made two breads. So therefore we understand also the man came down out of Shabbos, 
Wishteimer. One for Friday morning and Friday night. And one for Shabbos morning and Shabbos night, Malta Shabbos. Because let's call a spade a spade. Forty years in the desert, they didn't have Lava Malka. <laughs> so they had to have. So therefore we must say that this Mun teaches us that on Matzah Shabbos they had Lava Malka. So therefore we learn from the Mun that one needs to celebrate and eat every Matzah Shabbos Lava Malka. And it's a Zecha to the Mun. It's a commemoration to the Mun. Just like we need to eat the Sudas on Shabbos to remember the Mun to commemorate the month, we therefore need to do so also on Matzai Shabbos for Sudas David, Malka Mashiach, known as the Malava Malka. After all, it comes as a tikkun of the sin of the Eitz Hadas. If you're keeping score at home, you're still back that Gemara on the Sechtes Shabbos on Kuf Yudzayin on the Beis, 117, in the bottom slide 2. Where it talks about that the source we learn from, that we just said, the man. He writes there, There's one part of the, Jew, of the human body that never enjoys any food, except for the food that is eaten Matzah Shabbos. What part is that? The part is called the luz. The loose bone on the bottom of the spine. The loose bone is a bone. A lot of action going on over here. Very good. Loose. Yes. L-U-Z. The loose bone. And the loose bone Is the only bone that remains after a person is put in the ground and the decays and everything else, the only thing that remains after hundreds and hundreds of years is the lose. And it says that Tchiyas HaMesim will start with the lose. When did Misa, when the concept of death come about? By the Chet Eitz the sin of the Eitz had he not, and Adam not partaking of this, of this fruit, there would never be the concept of death in the world. When was this? Several hours before Shabbos. Had he waited three more hours and eaten this on Shabbos, the concept of death would not have come about. Because it would have been higher than the concept of Misa, and it would have been like an, it would have been Elam Haba itself. They would have been a Shabbos in Elam Haba, and therefore they'd be allowed to eat it. So therefore, the losers nourish, don't nourish the lose. Thank you. Therefore, since it represents Tchias Hamesim, since it represents the coming of Mashiach. And the resurrection of the Jew, of the Jews of the nation. So therefore, it comes dafka matzah Shabbos, dafka by the Malav Malka, which is in the time of finishing of Shabbos, a time of had he waited till this time to eat from the Eitz there would be no death in the world, 
And therefore, the thing that brings about life, that re- revitalizes life, is the luz, which is therefore nourished from the Malava Malka, so this David Malka Meshita. Hopefully this year, this week, Shabbat Shira and Tubishvat will bring us all the merits that we need, the Kaima Siyara Bishnashlimusa. And by Matzah Shabbos, when we wash for Siddhas David Malka Meshicha, it will be in the big sukkah, in the sukkah Achas Yeshu Kulam. We'll all be sitting in one sukkah, and we'll be eating from the Shera Ber, and the Leviyosan, and Mashiach Tzidkenu at our head. Shabbat Shalom to all.